listening to Ping, a new podcast by Apenic discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. If you're new to our show and are wondering what this podcast is all about, each fortnight we chat with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they are doing and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet. For those who have been listening, welcome back and thanks for the shares, feedback and reviews. And if you've subscribed, thanks for that too. Today, I'm talking with Alan Molden, who is a research director at everyone's favourite submarine mapping organisation, Tally Geography, which as you'll come to learn, offers many more helpful services, including open source data surrounding the health of the internet. Alan, welcome to Ping. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for having me here today. We've just finished another successful Apricot conference, which you and your colleagues have presented at in the past to much fanfare as the networking community has a great appreciation of maps, which Tally Geography is well known for. But a lot of people aren't as aware of the research you do behind the scenes as well. Could you enlighten us on what kind of data Tally Geography collects about the health of the internet? Yeah, sure. So we, we are a data-driven market research company. So we have data on many different facets of the internet industry. So we're gathering data, as you mentioned, on the submarine cables, their capacity, where they are, the, the, the new builds happening all over the world, which carriers offer which types of services in cities all over the world, whether it's from uh, you know dark fiber and wavelengths or a IPVPN product as well. Also data on data centers and how that's developing around the world. Similarly, we have data on the pricing of various services, whether it's pricing for wavelengths for IP transit, for VPNs, all sorts of pricing metrics as well that we use uh, to create a, a full picture of the uh, business, both the supply, demand, and pricing trends shaping how things are evolving around the world. Cool. And a lot of this data is open source as well, isn't it? I saw on your website that people can actually download this data and even create their own maps. That's correct. We, we do provide access to the data that underlies our submarine cable map, which is uh, submarinecablemap.com. And so users are able to access the data that underlies that, which is the landing points, the owners, and some of the metrics. Other parts of the data are not available for free and public. They are part of what we offer to our subscribers. I'm sure there are plenty of benefits to subscribing to Telegeography. Returning to your much-loved submarine cable maps, though, Apart from showing us all how reliant we have become on submarine cables, what else can they tell us about the present and the future of the internet? So to focus on this on the submarine cables, right now what we're seeing is a need globally really to refresh the amount of capacity and the, the number of cables we're, we're seeing. The need cables that are currently in service around the world have been around for you know 20 years now. And cables are designed to last for a minimum of, of 25 years, but they could go longer or shorter depending on if the cables are economically viable still. So with these aging cables on, on, on many routes, there's a need to have new higher capacity cables built to help augment. And eventually those cables will be turned off in the future. So we'll need to have more cables to ensure we have enough route diversity in place. And is this need to update cables leading to the current increase in cable laying in the Asia-Pacific region? I noticed in a couple of your recent presentations that economies such as Indonesia, Malaysia, and Japan have some of the oldest cables in the region. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at the Asia-Pac region, it's a coastal by nature, right? So most of the other connectivity by the nature of the the geography is going to be provided via submarine cables. So you have a, a massive amount of investment coming in 
for all types of cables in the region, whether it's it's intra-Asian cables linking Indonesia to Singapore and, and, and Thailand or Japan to Singapore and Hong Kong. Also, transpac cables and cables from Asia heading um, west towards towards Europe. So you have really happening activity happening in all all directions from the Asia Pac area. And the cables across the Pacific are actually quite quite interesting now. Um, you know, we're seeing some some new routes being developed. Historically, most of the cables were between Japan and the United States. There's a few from China to the U.S. that are currently still in service. But the newer cables right now are seeking to, to, to try to go largely from Singapore, Indonesia, um, and then going across the Pacific up to the United States this way, which is going to provide some new options for uh, routing and resiliency in case there are faults on the routes of, on, the, on the cables that go to Japan. That and obviously demand is a big factor too in terms of where cables are landing. I noted in one of your presentations as well that the top three economies that have the highest pace of growth of international bandwidth in the Asia-Pacific region were Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. So yes, you're correct that that we are seeing some of the most rapid growth rates in countries like Indonesia and the the, the Philippines. Certainly, the the major hubs in the region with the largest amount of absolute bandwidth continue to be uh, Japan, Singapore, and uh, China. But these second-tier hub countries, they are really growing at a very rapid clip. And so part of the new cable investment is to help augment uh, these countries who maybe traditionally didn't get um, as much capacity as these other countries have. So the, the new cables aren't just to serve major hubs. They're also trying to serve many different, different places along, along the way as well. I guess that's to be expected that the market's going to follow the eyeballs. Um, I'm, I'm interested in knowing what factor local content has and will have on international cable traffic growth. Might we see cable use plateauing because more content is created and cached locally? Sure. So, um, you know, there's always a desire to keep as much content local as you can, whether it's made locally or it's being pulled there and, and, and cached. But you have to remember that you always have to fill the caches. And so right now, there's still massive demand just to continue to populate and, and fill the caches around the world. Um, and besides, there is a large amount of data that, that will never be cached, right? And that's growing still. So for example, even this, this podcast we're recording right, right now is creating some level of international demand, right? And so th- things like, like this in the future, you, know, you can't cache that completely. So we're pretty confident that we're not going to see you know, a massive drop in the demand for international bandwidth. It has been, the rate has been slowing globally somewhat, but the, the overall numbers are still just massive, right? What we're adding each year in terms of new capacity internationally is just huge. It is huge. And as you say, this capacity and the subsequent new cables are following the demand. But there are other factors at play, aren't there? Yes. I mean, one of the big factors is where are the data centers, which aren't always following where people are, right? And so that's why you see certain parts of the world with um, you know, an, an outsized number of cables given their local demand. So the most obvious example is Singapore, right? So you have tons of cables coming in there. It's a major hub within Asia. And so you know, there is a desire among many parties to, to seek out secondary hubs, tertiary hubs to, to kind of supplement this. And, and so as new data, data center builds continue in other places, uh, you have to have hand-in-hand you know, new cables to connect to those locations to provide connectivity. And it's important to realize also you don't need to have just one cable. You need to have multiple cables. So 
we see many new cables happening purely because of the need for route diversity. So you want to have three to four paths generally to have a high level of service. So that's why we're seeing three or four cables kind of on the same route. Maybe it seems like it's it's too much, but actually it's needed if you want to make that new location into a, a viable route. Okay, so you need to think about the present user requirements, but also consider the potential of that new route being a hub or sub-hub, such as you mentioned earlier, is happening in Indonesia and the Philippines. And I guess there's also the need for resilience, as we've just seen play out recently with Tonga, which is not a scenario that many economies would face, particularly those with multiple links, including terrestrial links. But still, it is quite noticeable even for these economies when there is a cable break, whether it be natural or through a ship dropping anchor or an excavator digging where they shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Tonga incident just further highlights how important it is to have multiple cables on a given route. And as you noted appropriately, most countries in the Asia-Pac area have multiple cables. And so whenever there are breaks, which do happen all the time, and you never notice them as a user because there's no impact really, you kind of you kind of tend, tend to forget about this, right? You don't think about the cables that are un- underlying everything. But there are countries that could definitely use some more cables for diversity. So there are some investments happening um, as well to help support that. Places like Bangladesh, Myanmar as well, getting some new cables. So it's important for them to have new cables to provide a higher level of service in case there is a an incident of multiple cable outages happening in the future. And what about economies such as Australia and New Zealand, which you would think would be quite well serviced with cables, but compared to their northern neighbours, they actually only have quite a few cables. Is there also a need to increase the number of cables for these economies too, as a matter of resilience, not just for their populations, but the Pacific too, given that they act as major hubs for these economies? Yes, we're definitely seeing a lot of new investment happening in cables to Australia and New Zealand with the launch of Southern Cross Next happening this this, this year and the plans for the Hawaii Nui cable in, in 20, 2025. There's also other smaller cables with branches targeting Darwin as well. And so I think the, the, the real focus of, of cables connected to Australia recently has been to have more, more diversity with the launches of the Indigo cable and ASC on the West Coast, providing some new high-capacity routes link Australia to, to Singapore and having new cables like the JGA cable provide some, some diversity going up north to Guam and, and to Japan as well. So I think Australia has really seen a nice amount of improved route diversity um, in the last few years and more coming as well. Because in the past, as you noted, it was just a few cables just straight to the US and the other cables were very, you know, they were lower capacity. And so it's definitely good for Australia to have a, a much more d- diverse array of cables to link different locations besides just going to the United States. That's good. And I mean, it's about interlinking the region as well, not just for content and resilience reasons, but geopolitical reasons too. Yeah. In terms of the Asia-Pac area, one of the biggest issues has been to secure permits to land cables in certain geographies, whether it's in the South China Sea or it's cables coming into the U.S., um, and so some of these, these delays and postponements of cables is really causing many cable builders to try to focus on alternate routes. And so some of these cables like Echo and Bifrost, Hawaii Nui, um, that are looking to go a, on a route from S- Singapore to Indonesia across the United States, part of, of their idea is to try to avoid some of these permitting problems possibly. But also, it's more than that. As I said before, the goal is to really create some new paths for enhanced route diversity in the region. So not just having cables that go from Japan to the US, but having other locations, whether it's the 
Philippines with the new Cap One cable coming, or Echo by Frost and the others. And you're seeing a similar thing happening in the Atlantic, actually. In the Atlantic, it used to be the U.S. to the, the, the U.K. That's no more. You're seeing cables going to Denmark, Spain, France, a larger spread of cables across many different routes. Also thinking about cables heading you know, west from Asia to Europe, you are seeing some plans for cables that could go not via Egypt, as the vast majority do, but on a terrestrial route via Saudi Arabia, Jordan, um, Israel, into, into, into the Med that way, which would allow for some enhanced diversity beyond having all the cables going through Egypt. Mm, that's interesting. It seems we'll be seeing plenty of alternative cable routes in the future on your maps. I'd like to get back to the data you've been working with. You mentioned before you collect data about what's happening with bandwidth prices. Can you share some insights and trends on what you're seeing in this area? Right. So we do track the prices of bandwidth on many different routes around the world. We're gathering data directly from the suppliers of bandwidth, the people who offer them offer the capacity for sale. We also seek to talk to buyers of capacity to, to verify and vet the data that we're getting from these, these carriers. We, we try to have a good sense of where uh, transactions are actually taking place. In terms of the trends that we've been seeing, you know, historically, the prices of capacity, let's say you know, a, a 10 or 100 gig wavelength across the Pacific was falling you know, 20 to 25% per year. In the last few years, we've seen a slowdown of this. And in the past year, we, we noted an especially uh, strong slowdown. I believe prices fell um, less than 10% in this past year. One thing that's happening here is delays in getting cards to upgrade cables. So there is a bit of a short-term supply shortage happening, which means that there is not as much supply available at any given moment. So operators who want to buy the capacity are able to get a bit of a, a higher price than they normally would otherwise in the market when there was more uh, supply available on many, on many different, different cables. So that's what's happened really recently with this slowdown in uh, chips around the, around the world has had an impact on getting cards as well. People we've talked to said this could last another 12 to 18 months. And after, after that point in time, the view we have heard is that the price erosion would resume at a more traditional level. So we could see erosion returning to maybe a more to 15 to 20% level as, as well. Part of it also is prices have fallen so much on many of these routes, like the TransPAC route, where prices have become very close to the underlying cost base. So they don't have a lot of room to fall at a very rapid clip, much, much more. This will always change, though, as newer cables are introduced, which offer higher levels of capacity, thus leading to lower unit costs. And as we know, lower unit costs are passed to customers in the form of lower prices. So ultimately, prices will keep going down. But there's a bit of a, I guess, a short-term hiccup here right now we're seeing in the market. For a long time, transit providers were the ones who controlled submarine cables. But in recent times, a lot of investment has come from content providers. What impact has this had on the industry? So the way content providers have approached investing in cables has traditionally been to just become members of a consortium or a part of a joint build. The first cable like this was the Unity cable, which Google joined in 2010. And so you've seen this, this model continue with the involvement of Google in the SJC cable within Asia. And, and now you see Facebook involved in other cables like Bifrost and Echo and the, uh, the Apricot cable, which involves Google and Facebook. There's many others happening as well. But there are, there are no cables that are privately 
owned by a content provider in the Asia Pac area. It's always alongside other carriers. The carriers are the ones who are able to provide capacity to the ISPs, to, to enterprises. Whoever needs capacity can go to one of these carrier owners to source capacity. Uh, but they do generally use far less capacity on the cable than do the content providers who are taking you know, large large number of pairs themselves for their own internal use in their own networks. And largely because of the need to continually update their data centers and caches that they've distributed across the world, isn't it? Yeah, for the content providers, the goal is to link together their data centers you know, wherever they are around the world. And the cost of building cables for them, it's actually kind of cheap. If you compare it to the cost of building a data center, which is, you know, in the billions of dollars, cables are only, you know, in the hundreds of millions. So it's not that big of a deal, maybe. <laughs> I want to return to a point you mentioned earlier about validating your data. It wasn't something that I'd considered you needed to do, but I'm guessing it's important given you don't have 2020 vision of the internet and business behind it. So in terms of trying to validate data for pricing, what I was referring to is we don't just ask carriers and have them give us a price and just and take their word for it that that is the price. There's a range of prices in the market that exist. Depends on who you are, which carrier you're going after, which which cable is the capacity is on. And so we don't just take this one price point from a carrier and think that's that's the price for everybody. We talk to multiple suppliers of capacity on the route, but it's really important also to talk to people who are buying capacity and to get an idea of what they are paying. And if what they're paying falls within the range of, of what you've been hearing from the, uh, the carriers and other private suppliers of capacity on the route. So there is no one price for bandwidth, right? You, you can't just say that the price of bandwidth between Japan and the U.S. for 100 gigabit wavelength is $14,000 a month. It could be that. It could be 16. It could be 13. How many waves are you buying? What, 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 is, what is the uh, term? Many different factors uh, go into the, the price a user will actually end up, end up paying for capacity. So in essence, you're tapping into and sharing everyone's local knowledge. So we have a more opaque view of these contracts, which is good for everyone. You must have some strong relationships with the peering groups all across the world to do this. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that the, the key for us is we try to talk to everybody we can. Um, you know, that's the point of doing market, re- market re- research is that we aren't, you know, some kind of just brainiacs ourselves here. What, what we know is by asking people a lot of questions, right? So we have to talk to, to people across the industry, whether it's, it's, it's the carriers, people involved in the peering, the capacity planning teams, the data center operators, every, everybody we can, can talk to who can offer some intelligence to help, to help us to get a, a, a more thorough and complete picture of the industry is, is welcome to talk to us. And we always want to seek people who uh, people have comments on our data and, and want to have questions about it. Please ask us. We're happy to talk about it and, and see how we can make it, make it better and even more accurate. Indeed. Just looking at your frequently asked questions, you seem to get a wide variety of feedback and questions from the community, some of which relate to satellites, which you seek to correct some misconceptions about. Given the current hype around satellite constellations, is measuring and mapping satellite infrastructure something on telegeography's horizon? So we're definitely keeping a close eye on what's happening in the satellite area. Um, I think there's a, a, a few key points we can make about satellites here is the goal of these new LEO constellations is not in any way to replace or replicate what's currently being provided by submarine cables. It isn't the goal. They don't have the capacity and the cost of these, these constellations is so expensive that the cost per bit is way out of line with what a cable can, can currently offer. So the best frame to view these LEO sats, 
I believe, is in terms of an alternate way provide end user access. If you can't get good cell service, if you can't have any fixed line broadband as another option, then satellites are a great option. So if you're in a rural part of a country, you're in an, on an island with either no cables or, or limited options, then these LeoSats are going to be a great way to enhance and provide more robust connect- connectivity. But for the average user in a large city, you will never use a satellite internet service. It's just not going to happen, I think. It's going to be great for you know airplanes and, and boats and, and trucking, all these different things, things that are moving. Sites are great for, but it's not going to replace cables anytime soon. And the average user in a larger metropolitan area will never be using a satellite internet service, I think. Satellites are still out of Heli Geography's warehouse. Noted. Uh, in that case, what trends and new technologies are you looking forward to in the submarine and terrestrial cable area? There's a lot happening there right now. One of the most interesting things is we're seeing big improvements in the capacity of cables. And in the past, the goal was to try to increase the bandwidth per fiber pair. But we've, we're getting to some, some limits there, how much bandwidth you can push down a single fiber pair, given the distances we have to cross, especially across the Pacific Ocean. So what the uh, builders are doing now is trying to boost the number of fiber pairs in a cable, not just the bandwidth per pair. So we're seeing new cables like Biofrost and Echo having, you know, four to six to eight pairs, but 12 pairs. And so there's plans to go to 16 for other cables uh, in the Pacific. We're seeing that already in the Atlantic with 16 pair cables coming into service this year. And there's also plans in the Atlantic for a Facebook-led 24 pair cable uh, in 2024. So I would presume we would see cables of this type in the intra-Asian area as, as well coming in the, in the near future. So when you have more fiber pairs in a cable, that does create some new options for companies who perhaps in the past didn't own their own fiber pairs because it was too expensive. Now the cost per pair could drop to a level where it becomes very interesting for some companies to want to acquire not, not just wavelengths or a terabit of capacity, but to get, get access to an entire pair themselves and light it up as they see fit. What are the benefits of owning your own fiber pair? The advantage for having fiber pair would give you the ability to scale capacity as you see fit and not have to go to the market to source capacity to be paying a carrier to provide capacity for you. You would be able to work directly with a supplier of equipment to upgrade your, your network. To clarify, Alan, a 16-pair cable would be double the speed and carry double the amount of broadband as an 8-pair? as would a 24-pair compared to a 12-pair? So when we're seeing the, the, these increases from, from 8 to 16 and beyond, the increase in the bandwidth is not always a linear increase. Sometimes there is an, a need to reduce the bandwidth per fiber pair to enable the increase up to 16 pairs. But the goal is still you're seeing a large increase in the overall total capacity of the system. Thanks for clarifying that. And it's great to how you say these large capacity cables are helping bring down the cost of controlling a fiber pair. Out of curiosity, what happens to submarine cables that are superseded? Are they left on the seafloor or are they recycled? In the past, there, whenever cables were turned turned off and, and retired, the cables are you know with are taken away from the ocean floor and they are either salvaged. Um, or they are moved to a different location, possibly, or to a different use. Sometimes it's being used for a scientific research project. Sometimes it's being used to provide connectivity to a smaller island country, for example, where they have very low low demand. Um, 
But I think more, more commonly we've seen in the last several years is the cables that are turned off are being just pulled up and salvaged and stripped for the, the various component parts, the copper, the polyethylene, various things like that. That's good to know that they're not left to rust away. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Alan. I've learned quite a bit more about submarine cables and the data and research that Tally Geography collects and does. As mentioned, there's plenty of data that's open source, and if you want to join Tally Geography as a member, you can also get a lot more insights into the business side of peering. What I really enjoyed hearing about was the community aspect of the work you do, which I encourage anyone who's used Tally Geography's assets to assist with, as it all helps with understanding and mapping the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. It was, it was a pleasure to speak to you today. And thanks to everyone who's made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please do subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apenic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.